0: Today we have um, a privilege of having a guest speaker. Uh, His name is John Murray. He's from High Rock Arlington Church, a sister church in our denomination. Um, Believe it or not, there are other pastors, other churches that are checking in with Pastor Danny, Dan, and myself to see how we're doing in this process. They're praying for us. Um, And John is part of that group of people, and he is not a candidate for the next lead pastor. I I know you're not gonna be bold enough to ask, so passive aggressively you're gonna like try to hey, is he is he, you know, like trying to be you know the next Eugene, blah, 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 but he's not. It's just to clear the air so you can like rest easy. He is here to help uh our pastoral staff uh prepare for the for the upcoming year. So one thing to be excited for is that we're gonna to preach you to the book of Genesis all the way to Easter starting next Sunday. So uh, please pray for all of us. Um, uh, he'll he'll introduce more about himself in a little bit, but I did catch a couple of details, and he'll shake his head if I got any of these wrong. He's from uh, New Jersey originally, like almost half of our church. Um, he spent some time in Chicago with Willow Creek Church before coming out to Boston. So let's give him a warm welcome with a round of applause.
1: Well, as you said, my name's John, and I'm one of the pastors at High Rock Arlington. And I'm very glad to be here with you today. I don't get uh, very many opportunities to visit other churches. I'm usually kind of busy on a Sunday morning, so I appreciate the opportunity to be here. And he got all the other details right, so I don't need to correct anything. Well, in many churches, the first sermon of the year is often about, uh, you know, new directions or new decisions, new commitments, or even New Year's resolutions, and as contrived as it might seem, the new year really is a great time to take a step back and get a big picture view of life, about what you're doing and where you're headed, what are your values, your goals, your dreams. And I'd like to do something similar today, but talking about something a little more mundane, something that I like to call simply margin. I want to talk about margin in our lives. To have more margin in our time, more margin in our finances, to have more margin, just in your life in general. And when I say margin, I mean extra space, extra cushion. Margin in your time means that you have room for interruptions. It means that setbacks are just setbacks, not disasters. Margin in your finances means that you're not living paycheck to paycheck. It means that if you lose your job, you don't immediately lose your sanity. It means that when someone needs help or you come upon unforeseen circumstances, or maybe an unforeseen opportunity, you have the financial flexibility to respond. And all too often, when I hear people talk about having these kinds of margin, I hear them say, wow, that sounds wonderful. Just unrealistic, at least for me. You know, life is just too fast, it's too competitive, it takes everything I have, I can't keep anything in reserve. You know, I'll work hard now and get my sleep later, if later ever comes. I'll, I'll save up for later once I advance, you know, climb up the ladder to where I'm making enough money to actually save something. Or I'm going to push it as hard as I can right now, and I'll worry about margin down the road someday. And the problem with this kind of thinking is that the faster you go, the more margin you actually need. The harder you push your throttle, the worse the consequences if you lose control. When I drive back to New Jersey to see my mom, I often circle around New York City, depending on the time of day, and uh, take the Tappan Zee Bridge. And one of the problems with the Tappan Zee Bridge is it seems to be perpetually under construction. There's always some new white lines creating some new different lanes and some new pattern of merging, and then there are those ubiquitous Jersey barriers, you know, those movable cement obstacles that are everywhere. And somehow I always end up... I always seem to end up driving right next to one of those rows of Jersey barriers, which wouldn't be so bad if you're going 45 miles an hour and had three feet of margin. But on the Tappan Z, the traffic seems to be so squished together and you're moving at like 65 miles an hour and it feels like I could reach out and touch the barrier and my blood pressure shoots through the roof. I hate it. You see, when margin diminishes, our anxiety increases. The closer you get to those Jersey barriers, the more... Your, your blood pressure skyrockets. I think about my friend Joe. This doesn't just apply to driving. I think about a friend Joe, uh, a good friend growing up, and he went to Princeton, and straight out of Princeton went to Wall Street, and he was going full throttle. But by the end of his year, first year on Wall Street, his health broke down, his body broke down, his mind broke down. He ended up in the hospital for three days. And he said that at the end of the three days, he had an epiphany, that he was happier being sick in the hospital than he was about going back to work, and he knew something had to change. He had to have more margin. Now, if I were here here for several weeks, I would talk about the need for margin in many different areas of life, and how margin is really part of the rhythm of life that God designed for us. But for today I can only start the discussion and point out the need for margin, and more than that, emphasize how real life is actually found in the margins. And so when we squeeze out the margins, we're squeezing out life. The more we diminish the margin in our time and in our finances, the more we squeeze out the room for God to show up. Life with God, life, period, is found in the margins. But in order to see this for ourselves, I want us to all turn to Luke 10. We're going to look at Luke 10 today. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, you've probably heard a number of sermons on this parable, but the Bible is this amazing living document, and as many times as you come back to it, you you can always find something new and deep and and, uh, a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And I want to do that, try to do that today. So turning to Luke 10, uh, first thing, sometimes we forget how much of a contradiction Good Samaritan was for Jesus' original audience. In the mind of a first century Jew, it was a, a, an utter contradiction. But today, we have Good Samaritan Hospital, we have Good Samaritan Laws to protect those who try to help. Um, the final episode of the series Seinfeld, I know this is old for most of you, but the final episode of the series Seinfeld was based around this kind of made-up Good Samaritan Law where they could punish, be punished for not helping. But in Jesus' day, uh, any Jew would have regarded the term Good Samaritan as an oxymoron, a contradiction. Kind of like... You know, military intelligence, or amicable divorce, or business ethics, or act naturally. I love the one, act naturally. If you're acting, how is it natural? Controlled chaos, harmless sin, wireless cable, or perhaps entertaining sermon. You see, for the Jews in this time, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. Simply put, the Jews regarded the Samaritans as sort of like half-Jews and probably the worst half. They accepted, the Samaritans accepted some but not all of the Jewish teachings and they had a competing temple up on Mount Gerizim or at least they did until the Jewish uh, people destroyed it. And still fresh in the minds of Jesus' Jewish listeners, a group of Jewish pilgrims had, been, had passed near the border of Samaria, near the town of Janine, which, where there is still sectarian violence going on today. And as they passed Janine, there were a group... A group of these pilgrims were killed by some Samaritans. So in in retaliation, the Jews organized and they raided several of the villages on the border and burnt them all to the ground. And this was the immediate backdrop for Jesus' story about a good Samaritan. Now the actual parable starts with a conversation between Jesus and a lawyer. It's not like one of those jokes, you know, a lawyer walks into a bar. It's Jesus and a lawyer. In this case, he's an expert on the law. Their law was a religious law. So in many ways, he's an expert on religion. And this lawyer cross-examines Jesus in order to test him. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's an important question. But rather than give him a straight answer, Jesus responds with a question again. He says, what does it say in the law? I mean, you're a lawyer, what does the law say? And Jesus answers, or excuse me, the uh, man answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyer is forced to answer his own question. This style of question and answer, this question going back and forth was a common rabbinic teaching. It was a practice that was learned in something called Beit Midrash. It was sort of a, a middle school for future rabbis. And rather than simply answer a question, they would respond with a thoughtful question in turn, and this would go back and forth. Now, the lawyer knows the answer before he asks the question. This is just a test. And he gives the answer straight out of Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. He knows his law. But the lawyer's not happy with those answers. He wants to justify himself. He's looking for a loophole, a lawyer looking for a loophole. And so he asks this important follow-up question. So who is my neighbor? You know, exactly, who exactly do I need to love as myself? I mean, is that circle, if I draw that circle, is that me, just me? Or does it include my family? Is it my neighborhood, my region, my kin, my country, my race? How far do I have to draw that circle before I can say, stop, no further. And maybe he even had a few people in mind that he wanted to keep outside that circle. And so he asks, so who is my neighbor? Now this question's a little more complicated than the first one. So Jesus, he is going to respond with a question again. But in order to set up this question, he has to tell a story first. And he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. There's this man who's going down, a Jewish man who's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He falls into the hands of robbers. A priest comes by and passes on the other side. Then a Levite comes by and he passes on the other side. But it was a Samaritan who then comes and takes pity on the injured man. And what does he do in his pity? Well, first, he goes to him. He bandages his wounds. He pours out wine and oil, expensive things. He took the man on his own donkey to an inn. He then paid the innkeeper two days of his own wages in order to provide for him. And then he made a promise and said, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any other expense. This is the complete package of care. Now this road coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho is a road that descends a few thousand feet over a span of about 17 miles. And the locals had a name for it. They called it the Way of Blood. It's kind of like taking the orange line late at night. And so along comes this priest, and he's, you know, he's upper class. He's driving his Toyota Land Cruiser, and he doesn't stop to help. In fact, he drives on the other side. He knows it's wrong. He knows the law says to love his neighbor, even the alien in his midst. But is the man in his ditch really his neighbor? Now, a priest is an important person with important things to do. And if this wounded man was a non-Jew, then the priest would become ritually unclean. He would have to return to Jerusalem. He wouldn't be able to do his job, especially if the wounded man died. So why did the priest cross the road to get to the other side? He actually had a lot more uh, trouble getting to the other side than you might imagine. The Jericho Road looks something like this. Uh, that's not the actual Jericho Road, uh, but the guide and our guide in Israel assured us that it was uh, remarkably similar in construction to this road we happened to be on at that time. And I just want you to see that we're not talking about, like, Boylston Street or something like that. If you want to cross to the other side, you have to make a big effort to get away from somebody. According to the ceremonial law, the priest could not approach within five feet without becoming ritually unclean. So he doesn't even investigate. He steers clear. He goes way out of his way to avoid the wounded man. Next along comes a Levite. Now, he's middle class, he's driving his Honda Accord. Levites are basically assistants to the priests, some of them were even worship leaders. But the Levite, he's got important things to do, he doesn't stop either. Jesus then gets to the third person. At this point, the lawyer is already kind of extrapolating, I'm sure, and he's got to be imagining that the next person in the story is maybe a non-religious person, or if it's uh, following a socioeconomic pattern, maybe it's a poor person. I do not think the lawyer would have expected the next person to be a Samaritan person. And yet it is the Samaritan, the scum of the earth in the Jewish eyes, who gives help to the wounded man. He gives him first aid, he transports him, he pays two days wages up front and promises to pay any expense in the future. So Jesus finishes this story. And remember, the story is all a setup for a question that's in response to the earlier question. An answer to the lawyer's question. The lawyer had asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, so who was a neighbor to this man? And there's only one right answer. The lawyer answers, the one who had mercy on him. That was the neighbor. The one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. Consider what the Samaritan in this story did. He he crossed a cultural barrier to reach out. He crossed an economic barrier to reach out. He crossed an ethnic barrier to reach out. He lost his own time, his own money, and possibly even risked his life with all, all with no possibility of payback, no ROI, no return on investment. And no, knowing all this, Jesus tells him, tells us to go and do likewise. Now, I think this is one of the most inspiring stories. It's, it's one of the most popular parables in Jesus' teaching. And it's turned the word Samaritan from a pejorative term into a term of praise. The good Samaritan is a hero. To be a good Samaritan is to be a modern-day hero. But as inspiring as this story might be, I'm going to state right now, categorically, no reservation, that this story has no power to make any difference in your life everything I've said up until this point has no power to make any change in you unless, unless you are willing to radically eliminate hurry from your life. Unless you're willing to ruthlessly eliminate busyness from your schedule. Unless you have the margin to respond to God, unless you have the margin to respond to other people, to give uh, your fellow human being an open hand and an open heart, this story will make no difference. Now that might seem like a bold statement, but it's not just my opinion. It's been tested, it's been demonstrated, it's been verified, and I can point to any number of studies on this topic, but one that seems tailor-made to this parable At Princeton Theological Seminary, a theologian and a psychiatrist decided to set up a a modern Good Samaritan test. Now, the journey wasn't the way of blood. It was simply finding your way from the Green Hall to the Green Hall Annex. Not very far, not very dangerous. And the researchers basically fibbed to 40 volunteers who were seminary students about to graduate the researchers said that they were studying job placement for seminarians and they asked each of them to prepare either a uh, to, excuse me they asked each of them to prepare a talk that was going to be recorded half of them were told to prepare a talk on job opportunities after seminary and the other half were asked to prepare a talk on the good samaritan now one by one they were handed a sketch of how to get to the recording room in the green hall annex and then the seminarians were released 15 minutes apart. And what they did was also to further divide these two different groups into three subgroups based on time. The first group was told to take their time because they were early for the recording. They had 15 minutes to get there. They had plenty of time. The second group was told that they had just enough time to make it so they needed to hurry. The third and final group was told that they needed to rush because they were already five minutes late. Now, in an alley along the way, each of the seminarians would end up passing a young man lying in a doorway who was coughing and groaning as if in pain. And as you might guess, this young man was part of the experiment. He was an actor. I mean, how obvious can you be? It just screams out, parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Well, what were the results? Out of 40 seminarians, only 16 stopped to help. That means 24 did not stop and help. One person even stepped over the guy to get past him. Now, how did these results break down by group? Well, the first group who had plenty of time, 63% asked if if help was needed. In the second group who had no extra time, only 45% stopped. And in the final group who were already late, a mere 10% stopped to help the man. But what I found really interesting Was the difference between the two initial groups? The difference between the group that was preparing a talk on job opportunities after seminary and the group that was preparing a talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan, which has obvious and direct application to their situation. And what do you think was the statistical difference between those two groups? Do you think the preparing the parable, a talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan, made a big difference? You think it made maybe a little difference? It actually made no difference at all. There was no statistical difference based on what talk they had prepared. The only difference was the perception of hurriedness, the perception of busyness. Now, If having the Bible knowledge of a Princeton seminary and one of the finest theological institutions in the world, if having that kind of knowledge is not going to make a difference, then how much is your knowledge of the Bible going to help you? If preparing an entire talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan makes absolutely no difference, then how much difference is 30 minutes of listening to me teach you about this parable going to make in your life and the answer is no difference at all unless unless you are willing to radically eliminate hurry from your life unless you are going to create the kind of margin in your life where god can show up and lead you somewhere that maybe you weren't planning Now, this idea of finding life in the margins applies not only to individuals, but it applies to your community as well. And I'm going to have a couple diagrams up here to help illustrate this. Inside the circle here, in the center here, you see you. This circle represents you. There's going to be a bunch of other circles that are going to represent relationships in your life, relationships that each require the investment of some of your time. Now, first, you have your family, maybe two parents, maybe some sisters, brothers, cousins, whatever it is. And then, let's say you have a couple of friends that you see a lot. We'll add them up there. A few friends from the past that you try to stay in touch with. And then you have your work life, your boss. And then let's add in your coworkers. And if you're a manager or maybe a teaching assistant, you have some direct reports or some students. And if you're running your own business or if you're a consultant, you'll have a few client relationships that you need to manage. Starting to get a little crowded up there. And we haven't even started to talk about church and small group and things like that. Now let's say you decide you want to get married. And your new spouse has a relational network as well. And a lot of your spouse's relational network won't necessarily overlap with your relational network. So you're going to have to invest some time into those relationships as well. First of all, there's your spouse's family. And then there's a few of his or her key work relationships. And maybe a few of his or her friendships as, to, as well. And then let's say you move down the road and you decide to have kids. 1.94 is the average. We'll round up and say two. Two kids. Now, your kids have their own lives as well. Let's say they each do a sport, maybe soccer. Then they take an instrument. So let's add a teacher for that, plus a school teacher or two. And then do, your, you know, do kids do just one sport or do they do one sport a season? And then they've got their friends and maybe, you know, parent groups or PTO. And then if you're involved in something civic like a charity or a community group, it gets pretty busy. On average, according to Randy Frazee, author of The Connecting Church and Making Room for Life, on average, a person will have 35 to 40 relationships that require the investment of time. You see... The modern American life is so busy and spread so thin that we simply don't have the bandwidth to go deep with any of the circles because there are so many circles. And this doesn't even take into account the multiplication that can happen when you add in social media like Facebook. And we end up a mile wide but an inch deep. We all have so many circles that we simply cannot go deep with the ones that matter. And let's say that that diagram of all those circles represents a new person in your church, maybe a new believer. And what do we do with this person? Well, we actually, as a church, we make it worse. On average, the average church will add five more circles, five more relationships that require the investment of time. Now, they're already at their maximum. There's no margin. The average person has no margin. We give them five more relationships to manage what's going to happen. And then imagine also, if they're married, they're going to get five more circles for their, their, uh, their spouse and then for their kids. And a lot of those circles aren't going to overlap either. And so we compound this problem. In other words, we take one of the most problematic issues of modern life, this fracturing of our lives, this splitting of our time, the loss of all margin, we bring them into church and we say, here's some more, let's make it a little worse. Now when we hand those, those five circles, what are people going to do? Well, I heard Bill Hybels of Willow Creek say many times that the average new Christian slowly eliminates his or her non-Christian friendships until by 13 years after becoming a believer, the average believer has no significant relationships with non-believers, perhaps with the exception of one's own family. After 13 years, no connection, no deep connection with the world anymore. Now, I don't know where Bill Hybels gets this statistic, but I've been a believer long enough to see this play out so many times. Now, you guys, you're a relatively young church, new church. And more than that, you're a church that's in transition. You have what comes, one of the things that comes with that is a certain kind of flexibility and and the the opportunity to think about what you are and what you wish to become. You can make changes to your culture. You don't have to worry about, you know, new wine and old wineskins. And so I've been speaking so far about the need to reorder our individual lives, and as important as that may be, it's all the more important to make changes in the way we do community, spiritual community, to address this problem of having too many circles rather than compounding it. And so you guys are having a leadership retreat coming up. I, I give this to you. Find a way to strategically reduce the number of circles that people need to manage. Create relational overlap within families and social circles so that some of these circles, these become more manageable. Encourage people. Find ways to encourage people to live life in such a way where there's overlap with other people's relational networks in their neighborhoods, their schools, their workplace. Otherwise, you end up with a community of priests and Levites who have no margin for people who desperately need it. Now, most of the people here, you're young adults, most of you are probably single, and you probably, you know, you probably don't feel like you have a lot of margin now, Um, but I hope these illustrations illustrate to you that it's not going to get any easier. I once heard a parent say that when you have one kid, it's not too bad because you at least get some time to rest, but once you have two kids, you're in one-for-one coverage, and then when you have three kids, you've got to go to the zone defense. If you're single right now and you can't create margin in your life, if you cannot create margin in life, what are you going to do if you get married? What are you going to do if you have kids? What if you want to go back to school or start a business? If you can't find margin now, if you cannot create margin now, how are you going to do that down the road? Now, as important as it might be to realize this as an individual, it has cascading implications for you as a church. I don't know what your, your plans are as a church community, um, but perhaps you have a desire to keep your members in the future, that they would stay rather than just cycle through. But their lives are going to fill up and your community is going to have to adapt. Now, I actually came to Boston as part of a church plant in the town of Newton. We later moved to Natick. And prior to that, I was a volunteer ministry leader in Willow Creek in South Barrington, Illinois. Now, initially, our church plant was full of life. We were a bunch of young singles with, with tons of energy and availability, Lots of margin. With few exceptions, even the married couples in our groups didn't have kids. But then the inevitable happens. Singles become marrieds. Marrieds have kids. And then those kids need attention. Families decide a lot of times that they want one of the parents to stay home. So now they move from a dual-income family to a single-income and at the same time, those kids require more and more resources and programs, more teachers for Sunday school, more programs for our kids. We have to plan childcare for every single meeting. So, our church, our time margin dropped through the floor. Our financial margin decreased as our need for programs e- increased and family income decreased. And as pastor of that church, I felt like I was looking at supposedly more serious challenges, you know, spiritual challenges, challenges facing us. And I was almost blindsided, not by the problem, but by how deep the impact was of this loss of margin. In fact, we were all blindsided. By the time we became aware of how serious the challenge was to our margin, and then some events compounded the problem in my own personal life, we ended up closing our doors three years ago. So I ask you guys to think about this. Are you ready for the transitions ahead? Are you developing a culture, a way of life that creates margin, that c- creates room for life? Now, given the scope of our time today, I can only just present you with the challenge you face. I can't really unpack some of the potential solutions. If you want to look at that, I suggest Randy Frazee's book, Room for Life. Or if you're looking at it from a church perspective, I suggest his book, Connect- The Connecting Church. But right now, I just want to circle back to the parable for a moment. One of the things we have to realize about the Bible is that it's all about Jesus. No matter what you're reading anywhere in the Bible, it's about Jesus. If you're in Genesis 3, Leviticus 17, if you're reading the seventh feast of Israel, or if you're reading about the life of Abraham or Moses or David, it's all about Jesus. When you read these stories, you'll find more and more of Jesus revealed to you. When you read your Bible on your own, I challenge you to start with that question, And not walk away until you've at least tried to answer this. What does this tell me? What does this show me about who Jesus is? And that same challenge goes for the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now I mentioned earlier that there was this rabbinic method of question and answer. Basically a person asks a question, Jesus responds with a question, and then that question forces an answer that answers both questions. The final answer answers both questions. So the first time, the lawyer asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, what does the law say? And he says, love God, love my neighbor. And that answer answers both questions. We do something similar in English sometimes. For instance, if someone were to ask me, you know, John, do you think that the Patriots are going to end up in the Super Bowl? And I might say, is the Pope Catholic? And the answer to that question would be the answer to his question as well. It would answer both questions. So what Jesus does is respond to the second question in exactly the same way, but he needs to set up the question with the parable of the Good Samaritan. But after the parable, he asks that question, which is meant to elicit an answer that answers the lawyer's original question. So um, the original question was, Who is my neighbor? And who was a neighbor to the man? And the the lawyer has to answer, the man who helped him. The good Samaritan was the neighbor. So who is my neighbor? The good Samaritan is my neighbor. I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem to really answer the question. But one of the things it means for us right away is that, excuse me, as you identify what this parable means to you, it means that you are not the good Samaritan in the parable. That's not who you are. If anything, you're the person in the ditch. You're the person beaten up. You're the person in need of rescuing. And so who is your neighbor, the one you need to love? You need to love the good Samaritan, the one who helps you. So then who is this good Samaritan? Well, have you ever considered how much the good Samaritan bears a resemblance to Jesus himself? Uh, Like the Samaritan, Jesus is despised and rejected. Like the Samaritan, Jesus reaches out to everyone, even his enemies. Like the Samaritan, Jesus cares for every one of our needs. Like the Samaritan, Jesus lays down a deposit, and then when he leaves, he promises to return and pay everything. Jesus was even explicitly called a Samaritan by his detractors in John 8. So who is your neighbor, the one who rescues us? Jesus is. And once you realize this, and perhaps only once you realize this, then Jesus says to you, go and do likewise. So where do we go from here? Unlike seminarians in a rush to give a talk on the Good Samaritan, how do we go forth from here and actually do likewise? How do we make sure we create room for the Spirit to work in our lives? Now first of all, let me suggest that if you do not currently practice tithing, you know, giving a tenth of your income, and don't observe a Sabbath rest, I don't say this is a matter of the law, I just say this is a matter of freedom, I strongly, if you don't do those things, I strongly suggest that you reconsider. I don't have time to unpack this today, but I'm convinced that one of the primary purposes of these practices is to teach us to live on less. We tithe, and in tithing, we learn to live on less than the maximum amount of money that we have. And in doing that, we learn to view all money differently. And we create margin. It creates It's God's way of creating financial margin in our life. And then in Sabbath, it likewise forces us to live and do the things we need to do and the work we need to do on, on, on less than the maximum amount of time. It creates margin in our schedule. It's one of those cases where less becomes more. Now, you don't have to believe me. Maybe it doesn't make sense. Ask others who try it, or even better, try it yourself. Sometimes we need to obediently follow Christ in order to finally understand what he's been trying to teach us. Secondly, I encourage you this month, maybe even this week, to sit down, just sit down and read through one of the Gospels. It doesn't take very long. And in fact, just uh, pick whichever one you want Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Uh, I'm doing this right now with my kids. We're going through Matthew. If you want a shorter one, pick Mark. If you want one that goes a little more in depth, maybe pick Luke. And just read through and take notice of how much of Jesus' ministry was a series of interruptions. Jesus had a plan, someone interrupts him, and Jesus responds. In fact, one of my favorite passages comes in Luke 8, two chapters before the one we, we covered today, where Jesus comes back from, healing, from, from casting out demons on the other side of the sea. He comes back, he's teaching a crowd, and Jairus comes and interrupts him and says, my daughter is sick, please come with me to heal her. So Jesus responds to that interruption and along the way uh, he's in the middle of a pressing crowd and he feels the power go out of him and it turns out there's this woman who grabbed onto the hem of his robe and he says, who touched me? It's like an interruption of an interruption. It's interruptions on top of interruptions. And Jesus makes time for them all. When we have no margin, each interruption is an obstacle. We see it as an obstacle to the work that we need to do. But when we make room for God, interruptions can become the opportunity for God to give us his work to do. How do you react to the interruptions in your life? Is there room for God to get your attention? It's not too much of a stretch to say that Jesus' entire ministry was almost a string of interruptions. And so the ultimate reason that we should make room for life, life in the margins, rather than to live in busyness and hurry, is not just because it will make you more available to others. It's not just because it's going to enrich your life by allowing you to go deeper in the circles that you already have, the circles that matter most to you. And not just because it could help Cornerstone become a place that helps draw people out of this overstretched and fractured way of living but simply because it's exactly what Jesus would do. And he asks us to go and do likewise. It's what Jesus did. Understanding this this morning, take it to heart. Reconsider your priorities. Read through a gospel. And then understand when Jesus says to you, go and do likewise. May we all do likewise. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, I know that I'm standing in a crowd of people who tries to make, tries very hard, works very hard to make the most of their time. Many of them have devoted years to study and to work and trying to achieve certain goals, some their own, some their families, some they believe expectations from you. And these are all important things. And I ask that you bless them in the pursuit of them so that they could make an impact for your kingdom. But in the midst of all that, help us all to remember, especially those of us in ministry, help us all to remember that you give us enough time for the things that you call us to do. And if we're stretched to the maximum, it's not because you've given us too much, it's because we've taken responsibility too much. Maybe we've thought that we're too important. Lord, help us to see life through your eyes. Help us to engage in practices that help create margin, financial margin, time margin, so that we can be available to serve others and to serve you, not just in our plans, but especially in the interruptions. I pray, Lord, that when you send interruptions our way, we would have um, the sensitivity to your spirit, to look at them the way the Samaritan looked at the man on the side of the road. And we would stop and do what is needed, not out of obligation, not out of duty, but out of joy and love and thankfulness that you have done the same for us. Thank you for reaching out and saving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.